0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. So today we are taking a break from our series in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we are going to start going through a new series in the on the book of Second Thessalonians, the Apostle the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. This will serve not only as a break for Pastor Justin, but also as an opportunity for me to continue a study that I started in the fall of 2021 at CCS in our men's breakfast, in our men's course seminar, not men's breakfast. Time flies by. I, I think it was like yesterday that I was teaching on First Thessalonians to you men. But today we will then have, we're going to begin today and we're going to have three Sundays in July and we're going to have two Sundays in August to close this short letter of the Thessalonians. So let's start by opening scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 through 12, verses 1 through 12. Now let me read it for us. Paul, Salvanus, Salvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. By his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as of lately, I have been researching a great deal about embryo adoption, domestic adoption, international adoption, foster care, foster to adopt, and all different systems that you can think of that are in place to match couples longing for a child and children longing for being loved in a home. And the more you research, the more you hear stories. And a common one, not so much here in America, but in different areas of the world, is couples entering orphanages and seeing the sparkle in kids' eyes filled with expectation. And they're probably thinking, today is the day. The future parents, they bond with the little girl. They spend time with that little girl. They sign the paperwork for that little girl, and they even give their last name to that little girl. But they must leave the orphanage. They must leave promising to that little girl that they will come back for her. They need to wait for the processing time, and they also have to go back home and prepare a place for that little girl to come and be comfortable. But the little girl remains in the orphanage for just a little longer. That little girl continues eating the orphanage food, That she continues being picked on by the orphanage kids. She continues having to sleep in her old orphanage bed. But that little girl knows and is expectant that the couple is coming for her. Mom and dad will return. So stories like that warm our hearts and even tear our eyes up. and fills us with joy knowing that little girls are being adopted everywhere in the world. And praise be to God for that. But statistics reveal that for every one little girl like that in America, 20,000 other boys and girls remain in the foster system, and they may never be adopted. So imagine worldwide how this story ends. This seems unjust and unfair, and it is. It causes our heart to be wanting to adopt those little boys and girls, but we know that we can't. But while at one hand couples step into orphanages around the world, to take one or two children back home with them, that same stepping into the orphanage brings a grievous reality that not all of them will be redeemed. So differently from the adoption and foster systems of this world, the spiritual orphanage that we live in is one of our own doing. Our own trespasses and sins are the bricks and mortar that make up the walls of this orphanage, and they separate us from our good Father. But we all know the know the message of the gospel. At least we may have heard the message of the gospel. That Jesus entered for the first time in this orphanage in the world. He never touched or was stained with sin. Instead, he dwelt among us. He revealed to us the beauty of his home. He signed the unbreakable covenant of adoption with his blood on the cross. And he willingly received upon himself the punishment of the wrath of God. But because of his righteousness, and because God raised him from the dead, he is the only one that can truly adopt us. So he returned home, and he sealed us, the adopted children, believers, his adoptive children, with his spirit. And he promised that he would return to take us home once and for all. So when we turn our attention to the second letter of 2 Thessalonians, I think of Paul writing this letter as an older brother, older adopted brother, writing to younger adopted brothers and sisters, reminding them that dad's coming back, that Jesus is coming back to rescue us. The doctrine of the second coming is the main theme of the letter. In this first chapter, he wants to encourage them that because Jesus already came and endured suffering and persecutions, since they're saved, since they're adopted, so should they, and so will they. And as they do they become evidence of the righteous judgment of God to come, which is of the return of Jesus. So the majority of the letter, though, chapters 2 and 3, are instructions written as a gentle rebuke from Paul. After teaching in person and sending the first letter, Paul is bold and direct in chapter 2, rebuking them from their shaken minds being quick to believe that because of their suffering, the Lord had already came for some reason. And chapter 3 is another rebuke, but now to those that are taking advantage of the generosity of the faithful ones around them. But again, Paul is hugging the Thessalonians before he gently slaps them on the face. Today, we will see before any word of rebuke comes out of Paul's mouth to correct doctrine of the second coming, or the practices of Christian living, he pauses and he gives them a prayer report. Our message is uh, the text itself is not a prayer in and of itself, but it's Paul telling the Thessalonians how he has been praying for them as means of their spiritual growth, showing gratitude for that in verses one through four, encouragement for that in verses five through 10, and also he's hopeful. Because he sees the evidence of the righteous judgment of God in their lives, in verses 11 through 12. So, for those of you who missed a good old three point Baptist sermon, here we go. Three, Christians response, three Christian responses towards the evidence of the righteous judgment of God to come gratitude, encouragement, and hope. So, let's begin first, considering number one be thankful. For the evidence of the righteous judgment of God to come. Verses 1-4. through Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul wrote it with Silas and Timothy by his side. to The church of Thessalonica, Thessalonica in Thessalonica in the name of the triune God. And he confirms that he wrote it by repeating his typical greeting, greeting from the first letter and also from many other letters that he writes. But also stamping at the end of the letter, in the very last verse of the letter, saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So Paul wanted to make sure that they knew the legitimacy of this letter. Much like we can clearly recognize that my preaching is very different from Pastor Justin's because of the absence of hard words, they could also clearly tell that this Paul writing, his writing, it is Paul writing because of his skill in exploding his argument of a Christian doctrine into different areas of their lives with gentleness, with kindness, with soundness, and with truthfulness. There are some big words for you. So let's see how he does that, how he does this explosion of doctrine by looking at his center argument in actually verse 5. Look at verse 5 real quick. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So the righteous judgment of God which, which we will come in the second coming, which is his argument, is the doctrine that he's using to inform all other aspects of his prayer report. The word this connects the report to be thankful, and later the word that is going to connect his encouragement. The righteous judgment of God, if you will, is this big pool of ink that Paul is dipping his pen in writing his encouragements, his thanksgiving, and everything else. He's not divorcing his doctrine with his Christian living, with his thanksgiving, with his encouragement. In his writing style alone, he is informing us that all our thanksgivings, all our encouragements, and all of our hopes must be rooted in the sound doctrine of Scripture that Jesus will come back. And Paul begins to show that by being thankful for the evidence of this righteous judgment of God to come. He first says that we ought always to give thanks to you. He needs to be thankful for that. We ought to, as it is right, he says later. We have to. His thankfulness is both genuine and needed. It's not fake and with strings attached. Why do I say that? Because despite the Thessalonians' stubbornness to learn, because he's writing his second letter, not his first letter, and he taught them in person too. So despite their stubbornness to learn, he's thankful for them. Paul recognizes his need to rightly be thankful for them. That's right. There is a right way to be thankful. That is, always, for every believer in all circumstances. Paul is not thankful to God only for his Silas's, his Timothys, and his Marks. But he's also thankful for the Thessalonians. The context of the Thessalonians was poverty, uneducation. They were very different from Paul, but Paul loved them and was thankful for them because Christ saved them, brought them to the fold, and will come back to bring them home. So how can't he be thankful for them? He needs to be thankful for them. But how many times we are so quickly, quick to be thankful for friendly, helpful, loving, and kind members around us. And that's wonderful. We have to be thankful for them too. We rejoice and we easily warm our hearts with gratitude to God for all the blessings that they bring to us. But what about those that we don't really click with? What about those that we don't really like that much, even in the body of Jesus Christ? Remember, they will live with you forever. How grateful are you for the brothers and sisters that according to your sinful perspectives, apparently don't grow or simply cause you frustration and don't bring you any peace? Our ingratitude towards other believers may actually be revealing in our hearts a lack of knowledge and understanding of God's grace to them and also their hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we often don't care to admit that. But Paul had yet more reasons to be thankful. He not only needed to be grateful, but he also explained why he was thankful for them. Verse 3, he continues with a because And he gives two reasons to be thankful for them. First, the growth of their faith. And second, the increase of their love. That's what he says in the text. The faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the sure foundation of God's love for them caused them to love one another. Their salvation and love were plenty of reasons to Paul be grateful Just the fact that they were saving the Lord Jesus Christ and they were acting on that salvation by loving one another in that church. Paul wants them to know that their faith and their love were the two marks that made Christ's return good news for them. Just as they loved one another, now in providing for one another's needs in poverty, Christ will love them then by providing for their needs into eternity. If instead of a letter... I like to think Paul was preaching this to the Thessalonians. He would most likely look in their eyes and say something like this if he was here in America. I thank God for all of y'all because y'all believe in Jesus and y'all prove that you believed in Jesus by loving all of y'all. That's what Paul is saying. Nothing else. He's asking, are you growing in your faith? So show me how you love the saints. We tend to talk about how we've been growing in our faith when we ask one another, how have you been growing in your faith lately? We tend to answer something like, oh, I read my Bible every morning. I've been listening to three different theological podcasts on my way to work. I've attended three conferences last year on Christianity. Those are the ways that we usually say that we are growing. But what is our knowledge of doctrine and our rebuke of others if we don't have love? For one another. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Growing the faith happens in alignment with our love for the church, with our love for one another. Again, for the church. Even though we are called to love all peoples of all nations, of all ages, everywhere, we're specially called. To love those who have been adopted by Christ and put in the local church. Because doctrine drives practice. We know that the saints in our local church are adopted sons and daughters. And we must love one another. Care for each other's needs. And this is a great picture of, for the world, how the Lord will come back to rescue us. From our pains, from our sufferings, as we are about to see. And when we do that, it gives plenty of reasons. Right reasons for us to be boastful about our growth. Boastful to others about how we see the Lord working in each other's lives. Boasting is the consequence of a rightful, thankful heart. And that's what Paul says. Look at verse 4. Therefore, meaning because of all that that I just said, since I'm thankful for you all, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Their faith produced love, which enabled them to persevere through all kinds of persecutions that they were going through. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. They had Jews, Greeks, all people from everywhere in the world. It was a trade route. And they also had those mean Jews that were trying to persecute them and accuse them of teaching a false Jewishness, but they also had Gentiles being accused of leaving their former ways and following this new religion. So they're persecuted left and right from everywhere, from every direction. And that was reported to Paul, how they were remaining steadfast in the faith, remaining believing what they were first thought. And he himself boasted about it to the other churches in the area. And he would start telling, look at the Thessalonians. How they are persevering in their faith, even though people are accusing them of all kinds of wrong things. And that was means of the testimony that one day, in their persecution, Jesus would come back. Jesus will return to bring them relief. Pastor Justin and I, we we are about to visit Pastor Igor Alexander. You can find a picture of him in the back there, in our missions board. We're going to Rio to visit him, and I'm so very excited to see this brother in person because so far, every time we connect via Zoom to pray for one another and to report on each other's ministries, this brother is always saying something along these lines. Oh, Pastor Josue, I am so thankful because our deacons, they were mobilizing our our members to bypass this blockage on the road down the street in order to get to church. They have to walk together, and sometimes longer paths, and even use the back door of the church because of the parties that these gangs are throwing in front of our church. But they come, and they're growing, and they're loving one another and providing for each other's needs. A Christian that understands the need to rightly be thankful to God for their faith and love in every circumstance will boast when they suffer and when they're afflicted. This is an example of how his grateful heart, how Pastor Igor's grateful heart for his brothers and sisters, the steadfastness of faith, was evidenced through the suffering that caused him to boast about them in a phone call with me. Notice what he's not boasting about. He's not boasting about your education. He's not boasting about their protests against their oppressors. No, he's boasting about their growth of faith and their love for one another in providing for each other, even in the context of persecution, affliction, a lack of means to get to the place of worship. These brothers may not have the theological training that most of us do, or even access to the Christian books that most of us have, but in their suffering, they remain steadfast and faithful. And they are reasons for us to boast all the time about their faith. So Paul here is beginning to highlight how The sufferings of this world and the afflictions that we must endure are but a glimpse of the good and righteous judgment of God to come. So he's not only thankful for it, but he also encourages the Thessalonians on it. And that's our second point for this morning. Be encouraged by the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Be encouraged by the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Verses 5-10 through represents an interjection, if you will, of encouragement on Paul's prayer report. He says, this is evidence. And we already talked a little bit about this. This refers to his thanksgiving of their persecutions and sufferings. That comes in verse 3. So how can suffering and affliction be evidence of something good? How can suffering and affliction be evidence of something good? Notice that the context of suffering and affliction here is remaining loyal to the end, to what one holds most dear. Faithful, no matter the cost. So ask a loyal soldier if suffering for his country is worth it. Should that soldier survive? What does he receive? A medal of honor, right? So it's worth it. I was listening to a report uh, podcast actually this morning. And the guy that was teaching he said that back in the years 300 from 303 to 313 the romans were was the peak of roman persecution to the church and they had these guys in the church called subdeacons they were not the deacons they were subdeacons because they were responsible only for the reading of scripture because scripture was not available in that context so they had one scroll and they had one person responsible to read it all out for the church they were the subdeacons And then persecution came and they hit those subdeacons with the scriptures somewhere nobody could find. And the Romans knocked at the door of the deacons and the elders and said, Where are the scrolls? We want to burn them all. And they were like, Well, you might as well burn us. We're not going to tell you where it is. So they were suffering to keep the witness of the Lord alive. So if a soldier who holds dear for his country is willing to suffer for it, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, how much more would you be willing to suffer for the Lord and endure in your suffering, knowing that there's relief, that there is a medal of honor coming for us. And Paul is basing his argument on the words of Jesus himself. First, Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And John 15, remember, the world said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things, they will do on you on my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And he encourages the Thessalonians, just like Peter encouraged the believers in exile. Not to be surprised with the persecution when he comes, but... Rejoice Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Paul here is equating persevering in afflictions and persecutions with being worthy of the kingdom. Just like Christ persevered and was worthy to be resurrected from the dead, so will they. Notice that he doesn't say being worthy of entering the kingdom. Look in the text. He says being worthy of... Of the kingdom. Those that are saved. Secured in Christ. Will suffer afflictions and persecutions. As proof. As evidence. As confirmations. That they are citizens of the kingdom. When Jesus returns. He is going to return. With a medal of honor. Worthy of the kingdom. The one time event. Of Christ's regenerating work. In our hearts. When he came for the first time. Is confirmed in evidence throughout the time that we remain in the orphanage. In his steadfastness, in our perseverance, in our steadfastness, believing that Christ will come back. It's what we say, once saved, always persevering. Always persevering. Always worthy of the kingdom of God. But pastor, I live in America. I have a pretty good life. Am I worthy of the kingdom? Am I evidence of the righteous judgment of God if no one puts me in jail for my faith or kills me for it? Listen to me closely. While all the entertainment of this age looks at your faith, laughs at it, and offers many other options, and instead you choose to wake up early to grow in your faith and to love one another, you are being worthy of the kingdom of God. Every time a false teacher raises his voice to offer you wealth and goods, and you choose instead the difficult path of sanctification and sound doctrine, denying the flesh and every worldly gain, you are being worthy of the kingdom of God. Every time culture presses you to find your true identity in your sexuality or the approval of others, but instead you remain faithful to your spouse if you're married and pure in your celibacy if you're single, you are being worthy of the kingdom of God. Every time secular religion of this age asks you to deny the basic principles of Christianity, of creation, of hell, of heaven, and you remain faithful to the teachings that you were taught, you are being worthy of the kingdoms, the kingdom of God, for which you were called to suffer for. So take heart, brother and sister. Be encouraged today. When the time comes and the affliction may seem to increase, As the power of this world is growing, and may you may think that they can quiet us, they can cancel us, they can imprison us, or they can even put us to death. Remember what Timothy, what Paul said to Timothy: If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will also deny us. So I ask you: Are you enduring, or are you denying? Is the reality of a holy God who expects holy, persevering servants when He comes back to be ready? Is that good news, encouraging news to you, or is that frightening news to you? Depending on how you answer this question, he will place you in one of two very defined categories that Paul lays out in verses seven and six and seven, in relation to the righteous judgment of God to come. In verse six, he says, "You will be repaid affliction with affliction? In verse 7, he says, you will be granted relief from your affliction. Verses 8 and 9, he elaborates on the former. In verse 10, he elaborates on the latter. So because God is a righteous judge, he will, not let go, he will not let sin go unpunished. And because God is a righteous judge, he will not let righteousness go unrelieved. So let's look at each of them more closely. First, Verse 6, 8, and 9. So I'm skipping 7. Verse 6, 8, and 9. Since indeed God considers just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from, on from the glory of His might. Here Paul is clearly articulating That the doctrine of the second coming, Jesus returning, the moment that Jesus is stepped back into this world is about repayment, punishment, fire, vengeance on those who do not know God and did not obey the gospel of Christ. So the world and you, my friend, may be asking, but how can a loving God be so cruel and unjust in sending people to hell who never did anything bad to anyone? or if they did something bad isn't vengeance also bad isn't paul here contradicting the lex talionis of the law in matthew 5:38 when jesus himself said you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him also the other how can god do what he told his disciples not to do should not he show mercy as well Friend, if you think this way and you believe that God's justice is comparable to mere human justice, you are already falling on the first description of verse 8. You do not know God. You have a false idea of who God is, and because of that, a false idea of his justice. You may say, But I've never ever hurt anyone. I never disrespect anyone. I have never afflicted anyone. I even have Christian fans, and look, I'm here. I'm at church. Why would he send him to hell? Well, that's great, and I hope that because you're here, that may be the means that God will use to cause you to repent and be humble and come to Him to surrender to His grace. But look at the text again and find who sets the pattern of the offense. He says in verse six, since indeed God considers it just, not you, not me, not the president. Not the American legislation. God considers it just. God is the standard of the offense. If your affliction of not knowing God and not obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of verse 8. Is affliction enough to merit the affliction that comes from God towards all those that are in this state? So hear me closely. The affliction that awaits you is measured by the standard of the one who you afflicted. This affliction that awaits you is measured by the standard of the one whom you afflicted. If you curse your parents, you get a beating and you're grounded. If you curse the teacher, you get suspended. If you curse the cops, you may get a fine and maybe some time in jail. If you curse the president, I don't know what would happen nowadays, but you may be facing some serious charges. Now, if you curse God, which the Bible says that we all do... There is no may, there's no perhaps, there's no maybe, no. You will be, verse 9, look at verse 9. You will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And that's hell. That's eternal fire and gnashing of teeth. It is deserved agonizing terror. And you may say, but I thought you said this was Paul's way of encouragement. And that's right. The day of the Lord is glorious and it will be very encouraging because it will provide eternal rest from that possibility. Eternal security for those that are covered on God's righteousness. But not before he exercises vengeance on those who rejected his sweet forgiveness. So this is serious news, my friend. It's not my job to frighten you, but it is my job to inform you of the frightening side of this good news of the coming of the Lord. It is my job and every Christian's job in this room to both warn you and to clearly invite you. Look to Christ. Find relief. Your sin and is the affliction, your sin is, the affliction that hinders your ability to be considered worthy of the kingdom. At the same time that it is bad news if you remain dead in your trespasses and sins, this is wonderful news. if through repentance and faith you let God himself grant you his righteousness, of his own Son. By breathing into your heart of stone, a heart of flesh. By giving you new eyes to see the glorious wonders of his might, even when he returns, not as a threat, but as relief. So I plead with you, recognize Jesus today as the God of the Bible. Repent of your sins and obey the gospel by making him Lord of your life. But there is also the good news. The other side of the coin of God's righteous judgment. Verse 7 and 10 portray the great encouragement of Paul to the Thessalonians. The same God who considers just to repay affliction with affliction. will consider just to grant relief to the afflicted. Look at verse 7. He starts on God considers. So since indeed God considers just. To grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. As well as to us. Paul includes himself in this group when he says, as well as to us. Brothers and sisters, for us, for the church of Christ, Paul is reminding us that the affliction that we undergo in the name of Jesus in this life are but a moment compared to the wonderful and eternal relief that he will bring. We... Redemption Church, together with all the saints that have been saved by the first coming, who believed in the finished work of Christ on the cross. When the Lord Jesus is revealed on that day from heaven with his mighty angels, he will verse 10 us. Look at verse 10. He will verse 10 us. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed his promised coming brings not only his glorious presence in our midst but also his mighty glory in us while the condemned suffer for eternity believers are the worthy ones being called for being called to be everlasting sons and daughters of god through adoption he doesn't simply take us out of the orphanage he brings us to his home, and makes us our own, makes it our own. He grants us not only relief, but an inheritance. He shows not only compassion, but he gives us eternal joy, eternal gladness. You know when you try a new flavor of ice cream that you've never tasted before, and it's better than everything you've ever tasted? Try saying or explaining its majestic softness or the wonders of its sweetness. It's not even close To your best description. Because you just can't find words to describe it. How it tastes. So you give up. And you just invite that person to taste it for themselves. That's what Paul means by marvel at among all who believe. Only Christ's redeemed people will experience the unknowable glory of God at the day of the son's return. We must bring as much as we can to taste of his goodness. Because they can only taste if they're part of the family. They can only taste the second coming and the sweetness of it if they are part of the family. What wonderful news it is. And we ask, what is suffering? What is afflictions compared to the glory that is reserved to all those who are found persevering in Christ? How wonderful it is to know that in our suffering, in our affliction, God is using it as evidence to show the world that we belong to him and to no one else. This makes me think of Stephen as he's being stoned to death in the book of Acts. After preaching boldly the same gospel that I just preached to you, he looks to heaven at the edge of death, and he sees the Son standing for him, interceding for him, granting him the relief of everlasting comfort. And as he dies in his faithfulness, the evidence of his perseverance to the end is the catalyst that God uses to convert Paul. And now we're here, learning from the words of Paul. So church, be thankful. Be encouraged by the fact that God is bringing his good and righteous judgment. But also, and lastly, be hopeful. Be hopeful for the righteous judgment of God to come. Flip with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. I think it's one or two pages in your Bible. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith... Labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now go back to Second Thessalonians one three. Go back to Second Thessalonians one three. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you, of you for one another, is increasing. Did you notice what changed from? Thessalonians 1 to 2 Thessalonians. Paul doesn't mention their hope in the Lord Jesus in his second letter. Perhaps because of the fact that the Thessalonians remain in their fear of suffering. A misunderstanding about the second coming. Their hope started to dwindle, to be shaken. That's the word that he's going to be using in chapter 2. That he's going to use. That's actually the main reason Paul is writing this letter to begin with. To restore their hope and right understanding of the second coming. In the next chapter, we will see that Paul is going to go into details about their lack of hope, their deceitfulness in handling this doctrine that should be the main doctrine that we have hope to begin with. But they are starting to dwindle, shake their balance, if you will. But again, before he rebukes, he prays that the Lord may cause them to be hopeful. Even though in verses 11 through 12... Even though Paul doesn't use the word for hope, L peace in Greek, the content of this prayer matches the meaning of that word because it's one of expectation in God, anticipation of what he is going to do, and trust that God himself would act in the Thessalonians' behalf. His prayer is, not, is now not one of thanksgiving, but of hopeful petition. He's asking the Lord to act. And what does he ask to hope? What what is his hope on? What does he ask God to do? To grant them, verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good for every work of faith by his power. God himself may grant them the worthiness and faith that he was already thankful for them in the beginning of the letter. He's coming full circle. He's asking to God for God to do what he was already thankful for. So isn't God already doing it? Yes. He recognizes that they are saved by the grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he only, also knows that only God can grant them perseverance and hope for the second coming. So when they suffer, they're not slapping themselves on the back and saying, look how well I suffer. They're looking to God and saying, God, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. They know that they are adopted, but they also know that they are still in the orphanage. And this informs us a great deal about seeking God's intervention when brothers and sisters may be losing their hope that they once had. Perhaps we may still remain believers that we are saved in Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, loving one another with gladness. But waking up in the morning is weary, burdensome. The troubles of this world and the lack of fulfillment in life causes us to be burdensome. Causes us to lose hope, to be saddened, what people call to be fake happy, or sometimes even depressed. Perhaps you long for the return of the Lord, but for reasons similar to the Thessalonians, that your relief may come even as others around you die in their trespasses and sins. So sometimes, for some of us, the urgency of Christ's return, instead of being selfless, becomes selfish. So my prayer for you is Paul's prayer for you. That God may make you worthy of the calling in which he called you. Already to be worthy of his kingdom. That you may remember that he will resolve for good every work of faith by his power. Not by how hard you work on it. It is by his power that he will aid you, that he will raise you and comfort you in your affliction. So I invite you believer, be hopeful. That your Savior is coming. Live as those who are already being sanctified daily in Christ. Because one day we will be glorified in him. He says in verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. In you, in him, according to his grace. Remember that all of this is only possible because of his righteousness and his resurrection. Acts 17, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by all, to all, by raising him from the dead. Because Christ died, we have certainty that we are part of his family. But because Christ raised from the dead, we can believe that what he says is true. And he will come back to also raise us from the dead. That's what Paul is saying. And we have to trust Him. Paul again says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And it is going to be revealed at the historical second coming of Jesus Christ. And may we all together with Paul and the saints throughout history, groan inwardly, expect long without ceasing for the day that the doors of our orphanage will be opened and that the walls of sin and affliction destroyed, and we will be taken in, in the house, prepared for us for all eternity. On that day, indeed, he will glorify us in him, and he will glorify him in us. Take heart. The rebuke is about to come. (laughs) Chapter 2 is coming. Paul is going to be bold and direct with his rebuke. But remember that before the rebuke comes, he was thankful, he was encouraging, And he was hopeful because he knew that the righteous judgment of God would come. And that is good news for us that are being saved. But if you're not saved today, I invite you. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Because if you don't, this is bad news for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word because it is so clear. Thank you because you gave Paul skills to be doctrinally sound, but also gentle, kind, and encouraging with his words. Thank you, Father, because in it we see that you are returning. You are sending your son again to rescue those that are suffering and afflicted who have put their faith and trust in Christ. But Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, if there's anyone here today that has not put their faith in Christ, that has not repented of their sins, that has not understood that the patterns of their sins is going to be punished by the patterns of your holiness, I pray that your Holy Spirit may cause them to be born again this morning. And that they may join us in the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ's return. That that day is coming with vengeance, but also with relief. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.